This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Welcome to what I think is a shorter edition of Witnesses of History, with readings from the 1st and 2nd of April. And we start on the 1st of April at a Turkish bath in Adrianople. This is by Lady Mary Wortley Montague, the wife of the English ambassador to Turkey at the time. I went to the Bagnio about 10 o'clock. It was already full of women. It is built of stone in the shape of a dome, with no windows but in the roof, which gives light enough. There was five of these domes joined together, the outmost being less than the rest and serving only as a hall where the portress stood at the door. Ladies of quality generally gave this woman the value of a crown or ten shillings, and I did not forget that ceremony. The next room is a very large one, paved with marble, and all round is raised two sofas of marble, one above another. There were four fountains of cold water in this room, falling first into marble basins, and then running on the floor in little channels made for that purpose, which carried the streams into the next room something less than this, with the same sort of marble sofas, but so hot with steams of sulphur proceeding from the baths joining to it, t'was impossible to stay there with one's clothes on. The two other domes were the hot baths, one of which had cocks of cold water turning into it, to temper it to what degree of warmth the bathers have a mind to. I was in my travelling habit, which is a riding dress, and certainly appeared very extraordinary to them, there was not one of them that showed the least surprise or impertinent curiosity, but received me with all the obliging civility possible. I know no European court where the ladies would have behaved themselves in so polite a manner to a stranger. I believe in the whole there were two hundred women, and yet none of these disdainful smiles or satiric whispers that never fail in our assemblies when anybody appears that is not dressed exactly in fashion. They repeated over and over to me, Uzella, Peck, Uzella, which is nothing but charming, very charming. The first sofas were covered with cushions and rich carpets on which sat the ladies, and on the second their slaves behind them, but without any distinction of rank by their dress, all being in the state of nature, that is, in plain English, stark naked, without any beauty or defect concealed, yet there was not the least wanton smile or immodest gesture amongst them. They walked and moved with the same majestic grace which Milton describes of our general mother. There were many amongst them, as exactly proportioned as ever any goddess was drawn by the pencil of Guido or Titian, and most of their skins shiningly white, only adorned by their beautiful hair divided into many treasures hanging on their shoulders, braided either with pearl or ribboned, perfectly representing the figures of the graces. I was here convinced of the truth of a reflection that I had often made, that it was the fashion to go naked, the face would be hardly observed. I perceived that the ladies with the finest skins and most delicate shapes had the greatest share of my admiration, though their faces were sometimes less beautiful than those of their companions. To tell you the truth, I had wickedness enough to wish secretly that Mr Gervais would have been more in, been there invisible. I fancy it would have been 
very much improved his art to see so many fine women naked in different postures, some in conversation, some working, others drinking coffee or sherbet, and many negligently lying on their cushions, while their slaves, generally pretty girls of 17 or 18, were employed in braiding their hair in several pretty manners. In short, tis the woman's coffee house, where all the news of the town is told, scandal invented, and so on. They generally take this diversion once a week and stay there at least four or five hours without getting cold by immediate coming out of the hot bath into the cool room, which was very surprising to me. The lady that seemed the most considerable amongst them entreated me to sit by her and would fain have undressed me for the bath. I excused myself with some difficulty, they being also earnest in persuading me. I was at last forced to open my skirt and show them my stays, which satisfied them very well for I saw that they believed I was so locked up in that machine that it was not in my power to open it, which contrivance they attributed to my husband. And now a short extract from the Daily Telegraph of April the 2nd, 1856, from their special correspondent, Inkerman. In General Orders, dated headquarters, Sebastopol, March the 16th, 1856, I find the following paragraphs. Number one, it is notified by desire of the Secretary of State for War that Miss Florence Nightingale is recognised by Her Majesty's Government as the General Superintendent of the Female Nursing Establishment of the Military Hospital of the Army. Her instructions, however, require her to have the approval of the Principal Medical Officer in her exercise of the responsibility thus vested in her. We now go back to 1301 to 1337 and the calendar of coroner's rolls reports of mishaps in childhood from various dates over that period of time. In 1301, on Tuesday the feast of St Philip and St James, which is the 4th of May, a certain Hugh Picard was riding a white horse after the hour of Vespers when Petronilla, daughter of William de Wintonia, aged three years, was playing in the street and the horse, being strong, quickly carried Hugh against his will over Petronilla so that it struck her on her right side with its right forefoot. Petronilla lingered until the next day when she died at the hour of Vespers from the blow. Being asked who were present, the jurors know only of those mentioned. The corpse viewed, the right side of which appeared blue and badly bruised, and no other hurt. The horse valued at a mark for which Richard de Comps, the sheriff, will answer. Hugh fled and has no chattels. He afterwards surrendered to John de Borford, the sheriff. Later in the same year, a game on the way to school in 1301. On Tuesday, the 19th of July, Richard, son of John Le Maison, who was eight years old, was walking immediately after dinner across London Bridge to school. For fun, he tried to hang by his hands from a beam on the side of the bridge, but his hands giving way, he fell into the water and was drowned. Being asked who were present, the jurors say a great multitude of passers-by whose names they know not, but they suspect no one of the death except mischance. We move on to 1322, and on the Sunday before the Feast of St Dunstan, Robert, son of John de St Botoff, a boy seven years old, Richard, son of John de Chessant, and two other boys whose names are unknown were playing on certain pieces of timber in the lane called Kirun Lane in the ward of Vintry, and one piece fell on Robert and broke his right leg. 
In course of time, Joanna, his mother, arrived and rolled the timber off him and carried him to the shop, where he lingered until the Friday before the feast of St. Margaret, when he died at the hour of prime, of the broken leg, and of no other felony, nor do the jurors suspect any one of the death, but only the accident and the fracture. On Monday, in April, 1324, at the hour of Vespers, John, son of William de Burr, a boy five years old, was in the house of Richard Le Lather and had taken a parcel of wool and placed it in his cap. Emma, the wife of Richard, chastising him, struck him with her right hand under his left ear so that he cried. On hearing this, Isabella, his mother, raised the hue and carried him thence. He lingered until the hour of curfew of the same day when he died of the blow and not of any felony. Emma forthwith fled, but where she went or who received her, the jurors knew not. Afterwards, she surrendered herself to the prison at Newgate. On Tuesday, in Pentecost week, 1337, John, son of William Attenoke, Chandler, got out of a window in the rent of John de Winton, plumber, to recover a ball lost in a gutter at play. He slipped and fell and so injured himself that he died on the Saturday following of the fall. We conclude with the fairly famous story of Nelson at the Battle of Copenhagen on the 2nd of April, 1801. This is written by Colonel William Stewart. Nelson at Copenhagen was second in command to the elderly Admiral Sir Hyde Parker. An hour after disregarding Parker's signal, Nelson had overcome the Danish and completed his victory. Lord Nelson was at this time, as he had been during the whole action, walking the starboard side of the quarter-deck, sometimes much animated and at others heroically fine in his observations. A shot through the mainmast knocked a few splinters about us. He observed to me with a smile, It's warm work, and this day may be the last to any of us at any moment. And then, stopping short at the gangway, he used an expression never to be erased from my memory and said with emotion, but mark you, I would not be elsewhere for thousands. When the signal, number 39, was made, the signal lieutenant reported it to him. He continued his walk and did not appear to take notice of it. The lieutenant, meeting his lordship at the next turn, asked whether he should repeat it. Lord Nelson answered, no, acknowledge it. On the officer returning to the poop, his lordship called asked after him, Is number 16, the signal for close action, still hoisted? The lieutenant answering in the affirmative, Lord Nelson said, Mind you, keep it so. He now walked the deck considerably agitated, which was always known by his moving the stump of his right arm. After a turn or two, he said to me in a quick manner, Do you know what's shown on board of the commander-in-chief, number 39? On asking him what that meant, he answered, Why, to leave off action. Leave off action, he repeated, and then added with a shrug, Now, damn me if I do. He also observed, I believe, to Captain Foley, You know, Foley, I have only one eye. I have a right to be blind sometimes. And then, with an archness peculiar to his character, putting the glass to his blind eye, he exclaimed, I really do not see the signal.
You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>